There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bye, 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 baby. I am 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 Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast. I am your host, Nikesh Shukla. This is a parenting podcast where my guests and I talk about how to raise kids to be joyful in bleak times when we're so sad and angry about everything. It's an optimistic podcast, I promise you. Each week, I talk to writers, comedians, chefs, musicians, people who are parents in some way or not, and we talk about what it is to raise kids now. It's a podcast inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home, a memoir about parenting that asks the question, how do I raise my kid to be joyful in bleak sad times when I'm so sad and angry about everything? Synergy! Haha. Dad jokes <laughs> in abundance on this Monday morning as I record this intro. The book asks a lot of questions about how to navigate tricky issues like grief, racism, climate collapse, gender, mental health, and it's my attempt to write a hopeful book. As we come to season one of the podcast, I really urge all of you who haven't picked the book up yet to please buy it, especially now that bookshops are open. Yes, I'm recording this on the week of April 12th, where in the UK, bookshops are opening again. And I just want to take a second to shout out my new local independent bookshop, Gloucester Road Books on Gloucester Road in Bristol, just at the top of Pigsty Hill. Uh, Please go there if you are local to Bristol and support. Or if you're in Bristol and not near Gloucester Road, then Storysmith Books is another bookshop I love and Max Minerva's as well. Basically, there are loads of great bookshops in Bristol. But there are also great bookshops everywhere. Go and buy your books from bookshops. Go and buy some books. Books, books, books. Okay enough of that (laughs) (laughs) i'm feeling very silly today i've not slept very well i've not slept very well i i've not (laughs) i have not i did not sleep very well god what a weird loose intro this is but i'm gonna keep it like this right because this is just me and my true self all right This week's guest is Mira Jacob. I am so glad to get Mira on the podcast. When I decided I was going to do this, she was the first person I contacted uh, to be on it. She is an author I absolutely adore. Her writing is funny and tender and just close to my heart. When I was writing Brown Baby, I came across her graphic memoir, Good Talk, which is a series of conversations between her and her mixed-race child about racism in Trump's America. She talks about losing her father, trying to make her white in-laws understand what's happening in the country, and her journey to self-acceptance from being a child. It's brilliant. I love it so much. She also wrote the magical novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. If you haven't checked out her graphic essay about her child's fascination with Michael Jackson, please do. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I've also linked to her books and to Brown Baby in my bookshop.org affiliate shop. Uh, I am an affiliate of bookshop.org, which means that I have my own shop. Um, And half of the sales uh, from that shop go to independent bookshops and I get a cheeky little commission as well. So please do pick up our books. It's a great way to support a free podcast. All right, I'll be back at the end to say goodbye. I think... Uh, You've heard enough of this weird intro vibe. Uh, But so for now, please enjoy Brown Baby Season 1, Episode 14, Mira Jacob. Just need to run myself through all these steps. And I'm going to, just for safety, and I'm going to record myself on... Oh, I am 
internal port audio error oh dear <laughs> i don't even know what that means <laughs> you have nothing but sympathy from me i mean sure sure he said i can record the podcast myself doesn't matter <laughs> i can work it out <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard yeah um okay so should we just go into it and then I'm, I'm not taking up too much of your time yeah yeah sure i mean do we is it working do you need to test it to make sure it's recording or we're fine yeah no no it is all record re working okay, i have got a zoom that is recording you have got a voice memo that is recording i have got another program that is recording i can hear my children in another room um i will record <laughs> an intro where i gush uh lovingly about you and your work and good talk and how it changed my life and all the rest of it but in the meantime i am going to say welcome to the brown baby podcast mira jacob how are you oh good thank you for having me how are you i am fine <laughs> i am fine i just had to go and pick one child up from school with the other child crying and sniveling the whole way because we had to turn the television off in order for us to go and do this pickup thing and it reminded me that sometimes using the television as a babysitter has awful consequences yes totally especially right now i mean but also what are you supposed to do right now other than use the television or the computer at certain times but also i just feel like it's their reality and then you're taking away their reality so it's a little bit like what are you doing to me <laughs> yeah exactly now i am really really excited to talk to you about uh on this podcast uh, about good talk and obviously brown baby because i really feel like um i my book sort of inadvertently became in conversation with yours I felt like I feel like they're both in dialogue I, I read your book um mm -hmm. just after I'd kind of begun writing mine and uh I felt I felt real kinship with you and and for for, for people uh, who are coming to the podcast who haven't come across uh, good talk uh, do you do you want to just say in your words a couple of a couple of years down the line having talked about it to death uh if do you want to just tee up what good talk is yeah, sure. So Good Talk is, um, I think the subtitle is A Memoir in Conversations. And it's a drawn, it's a graphic book. And it consists of, oh, I'm sorry, can you hear all of New York in the background just now? I love it. Um, okay. it it's like, it's like uh, paying for a folio track. But okay, great, free. great. All right. As long as we're all good with that, we are in we are in New York, and it is going to New York upon us. Um, <laughs> it's, um, so it's a series of drawn conversations and basically it started out with this one conversation with my son who was sort of figuring out that he was brown at the same time that um, Black Lives Matter was rising in America and the violence against Black Americans was becoming more widely certainly discussed. Um, and so it's, it starts with that conversation, but then it really goes on to a lot of formative conversations over my life. And the way I drew it is I kind of drew all of us, me, my family, anyone I was having conversations with as paper dolls. And then you kind of, our expressions never really change, but the dialogue changes a lot. Mm. And the way, the things that we say to each other obviously move the narrative forward. So how's that? Yeah, no, that's perfect. I think, um, Obviously, I'd I'd read your novel, the uh, the sleepwalk. Oh, about to butcher the title, but the Sleepwalkers Guide to Dance. Hey, that was good. The Sleepwalkers Guide to Dancing. I'm amazed. <laughs> I, I, I worried that I was going to mash it up with another title by accident. Um, but and and then uh, was eagerly waiting for another novel from you, and then this uh, this essay um, about your 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 child and my, his obsession with Michael Jackson and race appeared uh on the internet and it blew my mind and it it i read it around the time that i was sort of having similar conversations with my daughter about skin color and dolls and um and then the book dropped and i just what i really loved about it was how how honest you you how honest you were about difficult conversations that you've had um because the book one of the one of the uh, sort of backdrops of the book is the kind of the run up to the 2016 election and the aftermath of the 2016 election and the kind of the the fallout that happens on 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 uh, 
at a family level. And I loved how honest you were about how the conversations with your child were sort of impacting and, and informing the conversations you were having with your wider networks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so funny <clears throat> because I think at that stage, you know, he was six to eight in the book. Um, so right before in 2016, he was eight years old, but six years old when the book release starts. And I think one of the things that children will do, as I'm sure you're aware, is they will ask you these questions that you think you know the answers to. You're like, oh yes, I'll tell you this thing. And then in the course of answering them, you're like, that is insane. What am I telling you? This mm. is completely wrongheaded. I can't possibly send you into the world with this, you know, with this information. Um, and so a lot of our conversations were a bit about that, really, about kind of understanding that these things that I had sort of taken for granted about how the world worked um, were really damaging and terrifying and not something I wanted to pass on to him at all. Yeah. Uh, one of the conversations that I describe in, in my book is um, my child asking me why people pray. Yeah. And it made me realize that I had to explain organized religion to her from the perspective of a non-believer who doesn't want to necessarily close the door for her on, on a life choice that she might want to make. And, yeah. um, and, and I feel like, you know, there, there are so many conversations like that in, in your book where you kind of depict the kind of the, the instant panic that one feels as a parent when, not only do they have to have a conversation with their child about something really serious, but they need to almost strip their own jaded projections and cynicisms uh, of the world out of it, uh, because that can sometimes feel intellectually dishonest. Uh, but also, you don't know everything. So you kind of have to like, make some stuff up. It, and it, it's really fascinating. I, I, I love it. I, that For me, that's when good talk is absolutely at its best and absolutely indispensable as a guide to parents on how it's okay to just sit in these conversations and have them as naturally because that kind of makes you more human to your child. You know, you're not the font of all knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think I might regret this when he's a teenager, when I'll wish that he did think I was the fount of all knowledge. <laughs> when I, I mean, I might, I might regret not having some sort of godlike control over him. But, um, but yeah, I think at this point he realizes how thoroughly fallible I am. And it's funny what you just said about um, about how we come to these conversations, and we have to, and we almost have to strip ourselves out of them because that is absolutely true right it's like you're trying to tell them about the world you're like well let me just let me also take away me from this because i'm not mm. entirely sure about myself and i don't i would like you to be a much better version of me so let me not try to get too much me on you as i tell you what my mind has made sense of and it's it's just this um it ends up being this wild conundrum because you want to make a better human in many ways than the one you have been and yet the only way to explain to them, you know, parts of the world that you understand is to tell them what you've been through. So it's really, it's a lot. Yeah, and for, for me, you know, I, one of those conversations was about um, having to explain to my child what racism was because at school mm -hmm. she was learning about um, a civil rights act that happened in Bristol where we live that was, that was really uh, famous yep. and uh, happened not far from where her school is. And, I realized that in trying to talk to her about racism, I started trying to, uh, it was an idea that she just did not understand at all. You know, she just found the idea utterly preposterous. And so I, I started to be like, well, people might be racist because of, and I started trying to rationalize racism for her in order to make her understand why people might feel that way. And I realized in that moment that I was projecting onto her a level of cynicism that she did not deserve. And it was actually intellectually dishonest of me to, to even rationalize this utterly preposterous idea. And so I had to just sort of stop myself and go, yeah, you're right. It right. is a stupid idea. <laughs> also, because we're in the midst of, I mean, I don't know um, how you've been feeling about this, but I, I feel like I've been in just a, a pretty wild learning curve for, I want to say maybe the last 25 years with trying to kind of undo so many of those ideas that were pushed upon me and so many ways in which I formed in reaction to them, right? So, so the idea that someone would come to it just saying, but that's such a stupid idea. 
what a relief what a relief that somebody can just see that i it's taken me you know decades to to kind of say it with that with that level of of belief what a stupid idea because so much of me has been bent and twisted in reaction to dealing with the re, you know the racism that's come at me yeah and and the thing is the moment you start saying you start yes anding the idea that it's the 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 feeling that it's stupid by talking about how insidious it is when she is six and she is in a classroom that is incredibly diverse you know um you know there are like three white people in her class um and the you know the the moment you start talking about the insidiousness of how silly this whole thing is is the moment you start projecting onto her the cynicism of your world rather than letting her find it for herself and while i want her to know that these things exist and they are damaging i also want her to form healthy relationships with people you know it's it's very mm-hmm. it's, it's a very odd tricky balance how, how have you found that with with your kid well, you know, the thing, so my kid, so Z is now um, 12. And really when, um, when I wrote the book, part of the joy of writing it is that he would ask me these questions. You know, there was, I think that in that beginning section you mentioned with Michael Jackson, he asked, um, you know, is Michael Jackson brown or is he white? And I said, well, he's black, um, but he sort of, you know, he turned white and he said, you, he turned white, are you gonna turn white? And I said, no. And he said, is daddy gonna turn white? I said, daddy's already white. He said, was he always? And so the the level of question he had was like the kind of questions you would get from a very sweet alien who had just landed on earth and was trying to figure out what everyone was saying about everything else. Just like, what does this mean, mm. right? Um, and that's a really different question than comes from a 12 year old boy who is almost my height um, has, you know, a reasonable, a reasonable mustache growing in as, as would most Indian kids. And, um, and also just, and I think is starting to get some of the fear of the world projected onto him is starting to understand a little bit, um, what it is like to move around the streets when people don't entirely trust you. So I think there's a way in which he's been feeling it firsthand. Um, that's quite different than the things I, I, I could decide to tell him, right? He's just in the world now. Mm. He goes out with a skateboard. He, you know, roams around Brooklyn in between his Zoom classes and and he has, you know, interactions with people. He goes into stores sometimes. He sees how people um, do and don't look at him. And so I think part of part of what he's going through now is the things that I can't um, I can't really protect him from and I can't explain away. And and obviously this summer where the the huge swathe of uh, Black Lives Matter protests yeah. that were happening across across well, the, the world, but you know obviously much more much more concentrated in in America. Um, mm-hmm. Was he was he kind of aware of what was going on? Oh yeah, yeah yeah. We went to a lot of marches. So they were all. It was it was one of the great things about um, living in Brooklyn is that um, so many of them came right 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 by our apartment and just picked us up um but it really did kind of feel that way there were so many protests and also i want um i go to protests all the time and and he um came with me several times when i felt it was safe and i think those moments were really empowering for him i think when i think um the news in america the media was really invested in this idea that you know, all the protests were violent and, you know, people were out of control, but that wasn't my experience of them at all. That was, it was, it was a lot of black and brown people coming together and the, and the sense was of shoring each other up and of trying to learn very quickly how to take care of each other in these systems that are constantly evolving methods to keep us apart. So, so the feeling was quite different and the, and also a lot of it was just, um, I think, you know, I mean, I've talked about this before with you a little bit, but I, I think the um, the idea of wokeness I find so repugnant because I feel like there's, to me, there's a real um, bent to it that feels distinctly American, which is the sort of triumphant trajectory that you take at the end of, you know, you're woke and then you understand things and you never again make mistakes. And that just has not been my experience of living in this body, in this life. I feel like I'm constantly learning. So. A lot of our work, to be honest, with a 12-year-old boy is, is, 
is that is setting up for him the idea that we're never going to have this one cracked. We're never going to have it figured out. We keep going forward anyway. And we keep asking ourselves hard questions about how we're moving through the world as brown people, right? And especially as Indians who's, you know, who oftentimes I know many of my relatives were anti-Black and had a lot of issues and, and would never be able to say it, that about themselves so clearly, but it was obvious to me, just as I was grown, you know, I grew up with a lot of those ideas in the ether around me. So unpacking that and saying, this is, this is a stance we took. And this is the, these are the historical reasons um, that that happened, but it will never, again, to your daughter's point, it will never make sense. There's nothing about this that is normal. There's mm. no reason that we have to take this forward into the world. You said something really interesting. Oh, you said a lot of interesting things, but not to not to diminish that. Um, but you said something really interesting there about this idea of um, you know a constant learning and unlearning. And one of the things that I have really noticed in the last five years that I have been, I guess, a prominent in the UK member of the culture war for you know a, a, a title that I would very happily not have, um, mm. is that a lot of times people are just pay, covering over the fact that they feel uncomfortable uh and that uncomfort that discomfort comes because so they've been it's been pointed out that something that they've said is fucked up and rather than take that and sit with it and learn and do better they double down and and i think that that's such a strange state of affairs that actually the braver thing to do is sit with your discomfort because otherwise you're just and and then you notice that more increasingly more and more people decide that they want to sit down and not get involved in these kinds of discussions or these kinds of fights or these kinds of protests because they're too scared of saying the wrong thing and you notice that discomfort has become weaponized in a really strange way where someone's discomfort is now more important than my dignity and i really mm -hmm. hate that because as as a male as a I guess a middle class male from you know a Brahmin caste who is trying my best to kind of unlearn stuff from my own past and 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 all the rest of it, I understand that I have to feel uncomfortable about certain things and I have to try and do better. And I just wish more people kind of were willing to do that. But what do you think stops them? F fear of fear of getting stuff wrong. I think I think it's as base as that. I don't know. I think it's shame. I think it's shame. Like I think that there's a way in which all of the learning reroutes to shame, which is an incredibly hard emotion for anybody to hold. Mm. You know, like I think of, I, I think of hard, uh, you know, the hard emotions to hold for me um, are hope because it's it's such a heavy emotion and it takes almost all of my energy to hold hope hmm. but shame wants to eject itself from my body shame is that feeling of wanting to outrun your own skin and erase your past and become someone entirely different the person that didn't make this mistake and i just i wonder if i wonder if part of our work in figuring out how to heal is to is to help build narratives past shame, which is not to say don't deal with these horrible things that you've done, of course, of course. But like for myself, when I'm talking with, when I'm talking with, for example, an Indian relative who's been extremely anti-black in the past and they've, and they've sort of rewritten the story um, to be, to kind of say like, no, that never happened and I'm this now. And, and, I'm, and I'm sort of gently trying to say, but you weren't. And I wasn't either. And part of that is because we didn't know better. And part of it is because we did know better. And we understood that if we aligned ourselves in this way, we would feel less power. What is that? Like, can we just look at that instead of running from that feeling? Can we look at that? Cause that's the thing that to me is the kind of most necessary interruption, right? You only know when you're making a power grab, if you look back on the ones that you've made already and you deal, like you deal with the idea that you did it. 
that, that in fact you did make that move. I find that, I, I guess what I'm saying is I find that people are, they want to rush the narrative forward past the shame. But if you rush past that part, you never know how to spot it when it's coming at you again, right? Mm. You never know how to kind of take a moment when you're about to do something horrific to someone and say, oh, this feels like the old thing. This feels like the time I didn't see somebody's humanity. This feels like the time I valued my power over their humanity. This feels like the time I valued to say what you were just saying, my discomfort over their humanity, right? Yeah, I really love that because for for me for me that's um you present that for me that feels like hope do, do, do you know what i mean like this this idea that we can um we can sit in 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 these feelings and and try and understand where they come from um because i i often worry with with my kids that i you know, kind of going back to kind of like the, the thematic thing that I keep coming to, I keep worrying about projecting my own shame or my own guilt or my own, my own shit, like my own baggage onto them. And that, that is a, it's a, it's a thing that really worries me. And, and um, every now and then I will catch myself doing or being a version of my father that I didn't always appreciate. Mm hmm in a way that's quite innate because it's just, it's a learned behavior. It's a learned thing that I've, you know, I've observed since I was a child. Um, and, and, but then like, you know, how, how that then manifests in practice is that like, in order to not be like that version of my father, I will then go so much the other way. So as to be the, the, the sort of the direct opposite of him. But you know, that again, that's not, that's not a sustainable way to live your life. Right. Right. Also, because if you form yourself only in opposition to something, you never figure out what your self is, right? Your actual self is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> do, do you, um, did, did you, did you, did you always think you were going to have kids? I'm oh, sorry if this is a personal question, but I'm, I'm no, interested. Um, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't, um, mainly because I didn't think I'd be any good at it. Um, which was which was also though a bummer to me because I really love I've always loved kids um, I've always really enjoyed kids a lot um, and I still really enjoy kids a lot surprisingly honestly after being a parent <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I didn't I didn't always think that I was going to have kids and I wasn't it didn't you know my I mean as long as we're talking about personal things my pregnancy wasn't a particularly good one like it was it was like my whole body just revolted um and everything that could go wrong sort of did one after the other so I remember thinking at some point like this this was a bad idea this was definitely not my best idea like I'm already bad at this and I'm only you know whatever 14 weeks in or whatever it was um but I was surprised when I had Z I was surprised by this really incredible Thing, which is that he was just his own person. I remember being so relieved about that. Like the pregnancy had been so brutal and I was so sick. And then when he came out, he was so kind of ferociously strong in a way that I, I wasn't gonna be for months, but like he was just this other thing that had survived and come out with this, you know, with, you know, the, my family's unibrow and sort of this kind of great, you know, roar of, of this great roaring cry. And I just remember thinking like, oh, he is, he's of you, but he's not yours. He is his own thing and he will find his own way. And it was a really immediate sensation and such relief in that, honestly. Well, that's, be that's beautiful. I, 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 prob probably because I I am I didn't sort of I didn't incubate I was searching for the wrong word the right <laughs> word I and purposefully almost purposefully chose the wrong one but um I I kind of when I held my my daughters for the first time both times I I kind of wanted to draw them into myself as much as possible because I kind mm. of felt this overwhelming does it's 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 like smothering but not again i'm I'm purposefully using the wrong word to kind of illustrate a, an extreme version of what i mean but i just wanted to surround them 
with myself yeah. and kind of protect them from the world they suddenly they suddenly seemed so much more in danger because now they were out in the world it was just such a strange thing i didn't understand it at all because i i felt like i was again projecting myself onto them or my own fears onto them i mean to be fair when you're looking at a small newborn baby it is really like looking at the most vulnerable thing i mean don't you remember that moment where they said now you take the baby home and you're like that's a bad idea guys <laughs> you know what i don't i don't think that's a good idea. like somebody else should definitely <laughs> Take the baby until the baby is four, certainly until the baby's skull has knit together into some sort of hard shell that cannot be hurt by me because I'm a very clumsy person. You know, <laughs> I just yeah. remember having that feeling of like, no, this is a, this is a terrible, um, this is, this is a, this is a very terrifying thing to have somebody this vulnerable. And yet, and yet, like, I, don't you remember those early, like, I always think of this too, even now when I see my son or somebody else's child do something spectacular. I always think of that idea that, you know, that like there's just this sort of innate ability or value that every human life has. And it's wild to see it come out. Sort of an amazing thing to see it, to see it come out. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I spent the first two weeks suddenly feeling like I was 14 again. And at mm. some point my dad was just going to arrive and say, <laughs> I'm going to take the baby now. You, you go and play PlayStation. And, uh, and no, he never came. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was, it was terrifying. Um, so one, I've got another thing that I really want to move on to talk to you about, but one of the things that, I've I guess obviously like you know we've we've spoken a bunch of times but obviously I, I I don't know you very well at all other than what what I've kind of absorbed from your work but one of the things that really strikes me about you especially in the way that you present these conversations with your son and and the people around you and this may just be authorial license but you seem like an incredibly empathetic person and and you just have this sort of gift for capturing conversations because one of the things that you seem to be really good at is just listening and presenting without judgment. And and that to me often feels like a great source of empathy. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I wonder, I wonder, I kind of want to run next door and ask Z, like, what do you think? Am I empathetic? <laughs> uh, I do love, I will say that I love conversations. I love the entire idea of people talking to each other I love it because um, that I, you know, I, I do this occasional class on on dialogue, and I think a lot about the movie. Did you ever see the movie Arrival? No. So that's the one, the Ted Chang one. That um, it basically, uh, I, I don't think this is a spoiler, but also all human people should go see this movie because I think it's absolutely wonderful. But essentially, aliens come down. It's like no other alien movie because essentially what you find out is that they um, speak a language that's circular, so there's no beginning and end. Uh, so everything that is happening has always been happening and will continue to happen. And some way in which our human brains learn that language leads us to understand how things are all interconnected, um, i.e. to world peace. It's an amazing story. But the great thing about this language when you see them doing it, and they're this incredible sort of octopus elephant type thing that you just you can't fathom um, that somebody came up with this as an idea. But they shoot this circle from from their strange paws and you see the circle of their language, you see the weird way in which it's formed. And I remember thinking at the time, like, holy shit, like what a way to communicate, what a way to communicate. And like, meanwhile, here on earth, we are stuck blowing noises through our mouth holes. Like what a <laughs> disaster we are. <laughs> what a horrible, what a cruel thing this is. Because the other part that's so funny to me is that as you're blowing a noise through your mouth hole, somebody else is the whole time that they are listening to you is also thinking about the noise that they're going to blow back, which means that they're not even really hearing you. I mean, it's an amazing, it's such a faulty process. Um, just having any conversations, but I really love how hard we go out with it. Like this continual belief that we can communicate when like everything in the world has showed us we, we're not that great at it. Um, and I love, I love that humans do this. I think we're such beautiful and strange animals that we will try this over and over again. So I think if I, um, I think that's the real, that's the thing that I love most about 
conversations is just is just the idea of how hard we are trying to be understood and um and how miserably we fail even though we keep trying like i love all of that about us yeah and i often think that the good difference the 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 smart difference between uh a writer who is a good listener and a writer who is a bad listener and you can tell which of those is a good writer but is a difference between someone who is actively listening to you and reflecting on the things that you're actually saying in the moment and the person who is just waiting for that me now me next this reminds me of a story that happened to me once kind of conversations and, and, (laughs) and and I get the impression from the series of conversations that you've collected that you're definitely an active listener which I think stands people in good stead for being empathetic parents as well Oh boy. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you say that. And I, I might actually just record this, um, keep this, you know, and for those future teenage moments that I, I think are like coming right down the pike, I'm going to, I'm going to oh, hold wait. this up as evidence to the child. Hold on the check that you sent me to, in order to say that just bounced. I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to to <laughs> that entire thing. <laughs> um, but on, on to, on to another thing, which, uh, I hope you don't mind talking about, but I guess the other thing that kind of makes me feel a kinship with you is we both lost parents not long before we had kids. And the way you write about grief and inheritance in your book is is some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever read. And I wonder, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that process of grieving for a parent and raising a child and how those two things kind of went for you i mean if you want if you want to know how it went for me read, read my no i absolutely do that's what i was going to say i was going to say i mean i'm happy to talk about this but i'm also um because i thought you handled it so beautifully in your in your book and i'm i'm very curious about what you told yourself to kind of get those passages down as clearly as you did um for me what would i say about that you know that passage there's a passage with my um father in the book um, in the moments that we realize that he really is going to um, die, and it's sort of this—it's sort of a longer story about always, always wanting to smoke pot with my parents, you know, because because here, honestly, like, there's this sort of idea of the Californian parent that smokes weed with their kids and is so cool, and if you do that with your parents, it's so cool, and it was like some other thing that I knew I was never going to be a part of because. My parents were such square immigrants and, you know, and I was their sort of um, uptight and nerdy and constantly worried child who did bad things, but only when I was absolutely sure no aunties could see me, you know, that, like that kid. (laughs) Oh, so then, so then this idea when my dad was um, dying, the idea that he was, you know, we started giving him um, weed so that he could eat and he sort of became this other floaty parent um and and this sort of other version of himself and I got to stay with that person for months um, before he died and and that chapter is a bit about that about the sort of stoner conversations that we were having but also what it was like to finally get the thing that you most longed for in the way that you would never want it um and I think for me you know it's funny that you asked this because it's um four days until the anniversary of my dad's death and and I know this from following you on social media that day also lives with you the day of loss um lives with you and it's just there's a way in which I find my body contorting in this moment to sort of to brace itself Mm. um even though it's been you know it's been years and years at this point I think I'm always surprised when they say grief is cyclical you know, and they, they, they kind of, you know, all, the, all those smarter people than me will say grief is a cycle. And I never understood what that meant. But to me, the closest thing that I can, closest sense I can make of it is how I always think of grief as like a planet that you never know how close you are orbiting to it. And so occasionally you'll just get sucked into its gravity, but like from out of nowhere. You know, you'll be walking along and and, you know, picking up the newspaper and getting some, you know, a can of beer from the store. And then suddenly you'll remember that you had a dad once and he was amazing. He was amazing. And he talked to you like no one else ever talked to you. And he was more interested in your life than anyone ever was or ever will be again. And that was a real thing that you had. And you forget in that moment, all the flaws that your father had too, because, because you just remember the feeling of being seen in a way that you'll never be seen again. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's- thing. yeah. 
And what yeah. about you? You were writing your your passages, which were beautiful. Oh no, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that that thing about commemorating dates I find difficult because everything mm -hmm. within me is like it's just a day. It's just a day. You have to just treat it like a day. But the the problem with trying to trick your brain like that is you're just drawing more attention to it. And um, you know, my mum, my mum's, my mum's death and my my bar, my my her mother's death. They both. My my bar died on the same day uh, Amy Winehouse died. So yeah. I will wow. never forget the day my bar died because wow. people, people talk about Amy Winehouse a lot. And my mum's birthday is September the 11th. And I really remember phoning my mum on her birthday as soon as I got up. And I happened to be in America at the time. Um, and so it was morning for me and afternoon for her. And I was waking up to call her to wish her happy birthday. And she was like, what the fuck is happening with in New York? And um, and so those dates would just always be like monoliths that I'm heading towards at, at any given time. And, you know, much as you try your best to swerve them or like throw a blanket over them and pretend they're not there, they are always there. And and that, that idea of cyclicalness, I, I, I also find that interesting because I also think that there is something about grief that, that flattens time in a way because my mum has been dead for, for 10 years this year, but she's also been dead mm -hmm. for two days and she's been dead for four months and she's been dead my entire life, my entire adult life, it feels like. And, and in, in that way that time flattens the grief, I feel all of those emotions along the the timeline of uh, of her not being with me all at once at the same time is is very strange. Yeah, I mean, I really, I really hear that, and I think that is also. Um, I feel like that's evident in in your book, both in how you you write about her, but also about the the connection that you um, you miss between her and your children, right? Because I think that's something else that's um, that's hard to reconcile with, you know, a kind of yeah. being, a, being a father that your mother never gets to really know in that way, you know, the kind of father that you become and not, and not having the parent to kind of bounce that off of. Yeah, because I think, I, I wonder how much I, I would have sought her out for advice. And I feel like, you know, she was a teenager in this country. She would have understood what it what it's like to grow up, um, what what it's like to grow up as as a young brown child in 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 these times. And she would have been able to give me perspective and and all the rest of it. I I learned an interesting thing about my mum right at the start of lockdown. I was exchanging voice notes with her best friend. I just I, I decided to get in touch with her best friend and get her to share with me memories of my mum. And she told me something about her that I'd never known before. I'd specifically asked her to tell me about my mother before she was my mother. I wanted to know what she was like as a teenager, but when, you know, when she had teenage hopes and dreams and posters of boys and whoever on her wall and all the rest of it, who, like, what was the name she was writing over and over again in the back of her exercise book? That's the stuff I wanted to know. Yeah. And my mum's friend told me that when my mum, she and my mum were teenagers, they both protested the local newspaper where they grow up because every time they reported on a crime that had been committed by a person of colour, they specified the ethnicity and they both found that incredibly racist. And this was the 60s and they led a big protest against this local newspaper who eventually changed the way they reported crime by people of colour, which I thought was amazing to know that my mum even then was like, doing these small pieces of activism that I guess I, I do in my, my life now. And I've always wondered where that's come from, but I think it's always just been in me that, that in the way that some certain things are innate. Oh, that's amazing. That's really amazing. What yeah. a gift. Yeah. What a gift to find that out. I'd... I think that's, you know, what's so interesting about that too, is because I think there's, um, that to me is one of those incredible gifts because in some ways you, you have the relationship with the parent that you lose that you have, right? You can't go back to it and you can't change it. But something like this, like finding out that there's still so much of her in you that you wouldn't have even necessarily been able to place before, but now you can. Like, what a strange, how did that feel for you? It, fe it felt 
I felt think it felt important because you know in death as as you were saying we kind of tend to memorialize people we tend to think about their best qualities and the qualities that weren't so great that would that now make us roll our eyes decades later but those details those small details those small and significant details those small everyday acts that they're the things that make a person a person I think there's this wonderful quote from um I'm I'm just gonna pause while I find it so I don't butcher it because I think it's a lovely thing that I'm going to share with you it's somewhere in this notebook I should just fold down the page because I seem to refer to it a lot sorry one second one second one second I will edit all this out or maybe I won't maybe I'll just give people a little peek behind the curtain <laughs> just to uh, feel the pages turning just feel the pages turning guys oh I can't find it um there's this there's this really great quote from Zadie Smith um, in, in a, a, an essay in Feel Free where she's talking about the I who is not me. And I'm paraphrasing this now because I couldn't find the thing in my notebook quick enough. But she talks about how um, the way people are in public, you know, their mannerisms, the way they dress, the way they talk. Those are the things that give us a sense of a person. Those are the things that kind of lead us into their interiority. And mm. and I think that's really important. That like, I, I think what Zadie Smith is trying to say is like the specificity of people is what gives us their universality and so in order to understand who my what the core self of my mum was I have to know about the specifics and that's why like talking to a friend in this way has been a really really fascinating thing for me. Mm. It's so interesting too because I'm thinking also about how that relates to writing because you and I have both been at this for a, a bit um, and I don't know if this happened to you when you were first writing, but I remember when I was writing when I was younger, and I'm talking, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when I would try to write about my experience. And I'm a Syrian Christian Indian who grew up in New Mexico with not a lot of other um, Syrian Christian Indians around me. In fact, there was one family. But um, but I remember trying to write about it, and the editors that I was talking to always kind of were, wanted me to to sort of labor sort of like well what's a this seems really specific what else what's a more like common Indian thing like what's more what's a more sort of it was like this idea that they had about what an every Indian would feel as though that is even mm. a thing you know it was like they didn't want the specificity because they almost felt like but it's specific enough that you're Indian isn't it do you really need to go into all of these different levels and um and one of my great joys really in writing good talk was just getting to be as specific as I am and getting to write down that exact experience and the and the and the really wild thing about it is how many people have related to it not being Syrian Christian Indians who grew up in New Mexico right like not not needing to have my same specificity to understand what it is like to come from a very specific background and to always feel both responsible for and burdened by and so terribly proud of that background yeah but I think I think that's because readers and viewers of television and all the rest of it have been taught to not see the universal in this the specificity of others like what is specific for us become what is specific for us can often be shorthand for other people and um you know I think often like you know, we live in a world where there were people in 2015 who were able, who were willing to suspend their disbelief for a film where there were ghosts that needed busting, but they couldn't suspend their disbelief enough for the thought that four women could do it. And that, to me, just shows me how small people's imaginations are. Um, right. That, you know, it is only through the specificity of of how we record lives that we are able to give we are able to lead the reader into something that's much deeper that like a deeper connection like how often how much growing up did I you know see myself in people like Peter Parker and mm-hmm. um you know Adrian Mole and all, all of these people who didn't like you know I don't necessarily think that people need to look like me all the time in order for me to see myself within them but I do think if you are the type of reader who wants um who wants to feel like books are for you, then that kind of representation can be important at critical times in your life. Mm-hmm. But it's so bizarre to me that people that people put a barrier up to it. Yeah, no, I mean, I found it, I've, um, I've sort of been delighted with this, um, 
I just I would I know I was talking about the the shame being a kind of terrible um, thing earlier in our conversation, but I honestly appreciate the great shaming of the literary establishment in the last years, and specifically the short-sightedness of many editors' bookshelves, the inability, you know, they the kind of the taking apart of the idea of well, I just look for stories that appeal to me, never looking at how small their lens was. Mm. And I appreciate um, that people are at least beginning to struggle to, to question that part of themselves, to say what stories appeal to me and why, and what am I overlooking in my great need to find something that appeals to me? What am I overlooking? You know, what are the stories that don't appeal to me, but I desperately need to hear anyway? Mm. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so before we finish up, before I've got a couple of questions for you just to finish on, but before we do, are you able to tell us what you're working on at the moment or is it, uh, is it at a stage where actually it's... I can tell you a bit. Um, I can tell you a bit. So one thing... I'll just say I'm in an especially good mood today because <laughs> I, um, I just finished a short story and it had been it had been a little while since I had written a piece of fiction that I felt um, since I'd written a kind of piece of fiction that I finished. The rest is a novel that I'm working on. And, and as you know, novels are these kind of very unwieldy beasts. And um, I'm very happy to be working on that novel. But but it felt really good to 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 dial into a small story and finish it and to live in that world completely. And then the other thing I'm working on, uh, which is far more glamorous, is a sort of fictionalized television version of Good Talk, which I can't say much more about it other than the process is really incredibly exhilarating. Oh, I'm so excited for that. I am so excited for that. Um, thank you. Um, sorry i was just excited at the prospect of fiction and then and then i was going to i was trying to remember where I th it may even have been the meris review podcast where you were talking about how actually it was such a massive pain in the ass to, to do a graphic novel and i wondered if you saw yourself doing more graphic conversations a, a la this i mean if people follow the good talk thanks instagram account you do every now and then post up new conversations and snippets and fragments but do yourself do you do you see yourself illustrating more stuff in the future i i think absolutely because there's there are times even now when um because that format is just so i mean now that i've done it it's really kind of delicious and easy for me so there are times even now where i think oh that would make a really good it kind of gives me a way to do a short drawn story that's very dialogue based and it uses these muscles that I really enjoy, which is 
you can't you can't dive into your metaphors you can't go into the the kind of the very deep, deep specificities of what you're feeling. You only have the dialogue and the characters to move the page. What does, what happens, what happens, what happens? And so there's a lot of freedom in that kind of constriction, right? Like as a creator, and I'm sure, I feel like, I'm, what am I telling you this for? But I think as, as people who create things, we know that the, the real pleasure lies within um, learning how to maneuver around the constrictions. So yeah, I'll definitely return to that format. Oh, amazing. And what what has been the best piece of advice you've ever received and the most useless piece of advice you've ever received as a parent? As a parent? As a parent, like the best piece of advice about parenting? Yeah. Oh, um, I think the best piece of advice about parenting was something that I read about um, letting, letting your child guide the conversation, especially when it's in these really rough areas of race and sexuality and all the rest of it in these in these very loaded areas sometimes they'll ask you a question um like you know they'll ask you know they'll ask you a, a kind of relatively minor question and you think you have to forward it into this incredibly large conversation so they'll ask you something that will tip off the this is racism you know flag in your head and then you're suddenly explaining the entire dynamics of how the usa was started you know just that kind of thing when really what you need to do is just answer the question you've been asked and let them ask you more questions that's been really helpful for me especially in not setting up disastrous conversations despite what i just said on this podcast okay i just want to say <laughs> <laughs> i mostly get that one right um and then the most useless piece of um of advice is actually more of a scolding that i usually get from um older white women, which is um, more, oh, he doesn't need to know about any of that. That's not something a child of his age needs to know, which is just preposterous to me on so many levels, as if they understand the first thing about being in a body like his, as if they don't understand that the thing that I'm protecting him from half the time is the things they think of him. The idea that that I'm supposed to hide him beside behind an innocence that they're hiding behind themselves. I just, I just find it really cruel and really awful and a way that they will send my child into the world without any armor on when I am doing my best to keep a reliable amount of honor of armor on while also just honoring the heart under it, you know? I love that so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mira Jacob. Thanks for having me. That's what the weather went by fast. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening today. Your support means absolutely everything to me. And I really hope you're getting something from these podcasts. I book, research, record, edit, upload, and promote the podcast all by myself with a little bit of support from my publishers at Bluebird, but mostly it's me. So I'm glad it's resonating with readers. Please do continue to support me and the podcast by buying the book, uh, buying the books uh, of the guests, supporting us on social media with tweets and Instagram posts and all the rest of it. A bunch of you are already doing that, and that is brilliant. It fills my heart with joy every time I see it. Telling people about the podcast, liking it, subscribing it, or subscribing to it even all that kind of stuff there is an acast supporter feature as well if you want to chuck me a couple of extra quid to help caffeinate me while i uh spend entire evenings editing this i'm not a sound engineer i'm trying my best okay hopefully the volume issue is sorted now but anyway thank you for sticking with me this far i hope you enjoyed today we've got two more episodes left in this season next week we have hurry kundru and then i'm going to close the season with one of my closest friends the comedian josie long Okay, everyone, thank you very much. Goodbye. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am, I am. Silly brown baby. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.